Now, friends, as we come to the seventh chapter here, we've come to actually the section that Paul, if he's the writer, was very much concerned about these people here. As you know, as we went through this section, we saw that there were two danger signals put up right here together. There was the peril of being dull of hearing and the peril of departing, actually, of departing to the extent that they'd lose their reward. They wouldn't go on with the Lord Jesus. And if you'll notice that it's all in relation to the Word of God from the very beginning. There was a danger doubting. There was a danger drifting. And as they began to drift, neglecting the Word of God, not listening now to the Son of God as He speaks, then they came to a place of doubting. And you can't study the Word of God and stay in it and doubt. The important thing is the study of the Word increases our faith. And therefore, they took that second step of doubting. And then wasn't long until they reached the place of just being dull of hearing. They didn't understand. And they were babes. And then there came the day when their lives were such that they could never live a life that would command the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never be a real witness for him. And there's a real danger in that as we've seen. And so he speaks here in this seventh chapter now as he's come to the subject that he said, I'd like to serve you a nice porterhouse steak and we'll finish our salad. Let us, let us. Now he says, I want to lead you into that truth. Now the question comes up as we get to chapter 7 today. Here's a test for you. Here's a barometer. Here's a Geiger counter to put down on your life. What is this chapter? In fact, what is the rest of Hebrews going to mean to you? For now we've come to this subject today, and a subject that is really neglected in the church even in evangelistic churches, they talk a great deal about the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's wonderful. But, my friend, we need to go on to a living Christ who is at this moment at God's right hand. Now, if he rose from the dead, he's somewhere today. And he's at God's right hand, and he has a ministry there for us. Now, the reality of that ministry for you and me is really what tests our spiritual life. Now, he comes back to make the comparison and actually contrast of the priesthood of Melchizedek and also of Aaron. Now, will you notice with Melchizedek, it's the person, and with Aaron, it is the work of the priest that the comparison is made. Now, in verse 1, and I'm reading now, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, this is very important for us to see, and I want to note first the little word for. Now, that little word is cement. It holds what's been said with what's going to come for this Melchizedek. And it takes us back to the 20th verse. And actually, we need really to move back to verse 17. And that's Hebrews 6. And I'm going over that now rapidly. I'm reading 
verse 17 of chapter 6, "...wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath." Now, when God does a thing like this, and he doesn't need to take an oath, but he does, he makes it very clear that this is important. This is all important. And he'd have you and me know that it is all important. And he says here that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who had fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Now, we call attention here to these two immutable things the death and resurrection of Christ, and then his ascension and intercession for us today. These are four great facts that give us an assurance, and it has given us a refuge that we can lay hold of. Now, the minute he mentions that, it calls to mind the reference back in, well, it's in the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, In fact, if you want the reference, back in chapter 35 of Numbers and Deuteronomy 19 and the 20th and 21st chapters of Joshua, there were cities of refuge. And those cities of refuge are types of Christ, uh, sheltering the sinner from death. And it's a very marvelous thing that they did. You see, one could flee to one of these cities if he had accidentally killed someone and Maybe the one he killed has a hot-headed brother, and he's going to get vengeance. Well, this party can flee to a city of refuge. Then he can be tried by his peers, his elders. And if he is declared free, then he's acquitted, and he can leave the protection of the city of refuge now. That is, after the death of the high priest that was high priest when it happened, and a new high priest comes along. And boy, what a picture this is for us. This reveals that Christ is our refuge today. I have already been carried into court, into God's court. And may I say the trial was a trial that found me guilty. I was a sinner. And the penalty that was leveled against me was death. And by the way, it's already been executed. Christ bore that for me. You see, he died. Now I'm free, as this man now can leave the city of refuge. I'm free. I'm delivered. I'm delivered from the penalty of sin. Never have to answer for it again. I'm free now to go out and serve him. And now I actually have a new high priest that I can go to, the resurrected Christ now. And I can go to him. You see what we've gotten into now? We've gotten into what's known as types. And a great many people don't like types. That's the thing you see that's the beefsteak. Babes like milk. They like these nice little sermonettes on the 23rd Psalm and about the Sermon on the Mount. And you must be a nice little boy and you must be good. And if you do all those things and you're, you know, a sort of a decent citizen that doesn't get in trouble or get too many traffic tickets, then you're one that's a candidate for salvation. In fact, God's going to pat you on the back, and you're going to be like that little 
was that little Tommy Tucker called for his supper, but somebody else has sat in the corner. Little Jack Horner, he sat in the corner. That is it. And he was eating a piece of pie. He reached in his thumb, he pulled out a plum, and he said, what a smart boy am I. We got our churches filled with little Jack Horner reaching into the pie, and they saying they're a smart boy. My friend, may I say to you, that's baby stuff. That's a nice glass of milk for you. But how about trying a porterhouse steak now? And you need the protein, by the way. If you're going to grow in grace and reach maturation now, and we're going to deal with the type. This is a picture of my Savior. This is a picture book. And now this is something I'm to look upon. Somebody says, but is that scriptural? Will you listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 11? He says, all these things happened unto them for examples. The word in the Greek is types, literally. It's types. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the end or the consummation of the ages has come. Those things have been written, just certain things, and there were millions of things that could have been recorded in the past. But God did not record those things. He recorded these things because these are the things that can enable you to grow and a knowledge of the Word of God. And therefore, this is a wonderful type. This is a wonderful picture. Now, he goes on to say in verse 19, "...which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil." Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we have a high priest. He's gone within the veil, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, the difference between Aaron and the Lord Jesus Christ is this, and I say this reverently, poor old Aaron never did sit down when he's serving There was no seats in the tabernacle. There was a mercy seat, but God was there. And Aaron, he hurried in, hurried out. He didn't spend time there. But you and I have got a superior high priest. He's gone in. He sat down. He has a finished redemption. He's presented his blood there. And today there's a mercy seat, and he's our intercessor there. Now we're talking about beefsteaks, friends. We're not talking about drinking a little milk now, arguing about some little doctrine today and about whether I do this or do that. We're talking now about our great high priest. I'm reading again. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, there's something else here. The critic today does not like dispensations. Now, he says, my, he's against that. The denomination that I was brought up in has made that a heresy today, this matter of dispensation. And many preachers won't mention it. I mention it because the Bible even uses the term. And these are the different ages you see. Now, you need to look over this. Back in the Old Testament, you had Aaron as the high priest, And you had a literal tabernacle down here. We today have a literal high priest, and he's not ministering in any building down here. 
He's up yonder at God's right hand, and he's there right now. What kind of faith do you have today, friends? Have you been growing in grace? Has Jesus Christ at God's right hand become a reality to you today? We're talking now about a steakhouse. I want to take you to dinner. (laughs) And a great many people say, I eat dinner with you. All right, let's have steak today. I know meat's always very high, isn't it? Very expensive. God furnishes this for us. And he says it's without money and it's without price. Now we have here then this very wonderful picture of Melchizedek. Now, actually, we have a reference to him back yonder in the Old Testament. And it's just one reference back there in the 14th chapter of the book of Genesis. And frankly, I would have forgotten about him, but the Spirit of God didn't forget about him. And now we come to the 110th Psalm, and there's a prophecy about him that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he's coming. Now he's come, and you and I are living in the day of his priesthood. So here in Hebrews, we have quite a few references to him. Someone, I think, has said there are ten references to him. Here are nine or ten verses. And, for instance, go back to chapter 5, just for a minute now, verses 5 and 6. So Christ also glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that spake unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then again in the tenth verse, he's named of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And I come over to chapter 6 and verse 20, whether as a forerunner, Jesus entered for us, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now we have this statement here in chapter 7, and he's really going to talk about him now. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. Now, I really think that The very key of chapter 7, you'd have to go down in the chapter to verse 17. And there we'd read this. For he testifieth, or he witnesses, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to look at Christ as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that means that we need to know all we can know about Melchizedek. We've talked about him before. Now we see here several things about him. In the first three verses, Christ is a perpetual priest because he's after Melchizedek. And then in verses 4 to 22, Christ is a perfect priest. And then you come down to verses 23 to 28, Christ in his person is perpetual, a perpetual and perfect priest. So that now we're looking at the priesthood of Christ, and that's the work of Christ I find greatly neglected today in the church. Now let's go back to chapter 14 of Genesis. And I want to turn back to that chapter and look at it because we have a lot said here. Well, we have a lot said about Lot, if you want to play on words. 
You understand that Lot had moved down to Sodom, and then we have a record in Genesis 14. This is a remarkable chapter, by the way, in many ways. It records the first war. And here you have the kings of the east. They formed a confederacy, and they came together against the kings of the west, that is, those that were around the Dead Sea. And those that came from the east, well, they won. And they were lugging off the people as slaves and the wealth of the city as booty. And word was brought to Abram that his nephew Lot was being carried away into captivity. And so Abraham did a rather unusual thing. He was able to arm about 318. That means he had quite a household. And that means with each man that he could arm, must have been one woman and a child at least. That would mean that he had about a thousand that served and under him. So he takes these 318, and by a surprise attack, he was able to get a victory over the kings of the east. And all he was concerned about was just rescuing Lot. But in so doing, he was able to rescue the king of Sodom and all the Sodomites. That was nothing to brag about. And all the others. We're told, verse 17 now of Genesis 14, the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Shador Leomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. Now, this man, Abraham, I would say, is in grave danger here because the king of Sodom and Gomorrah are going to really make him an offer. And that would more or less make him an ally with them. And Abraham was entirely separated from him. And then out of nowhere, we read, And Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, it's been supposed that Salem was Jerusalem. And may I say to you that actually, I do not think that's true at all. Because Salem here actually is not a place but the word Salem means peace. And we get that in verse 2 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. doesn't say he's king of Jerusalem. He's king of peace. This is the man that could make peace in that day. Now, that's the thing that is important about this man, Melchizedek. He's king of Salem, and I'm sure he had a place somewhere, but it doesn't mean Jerusalem. It could be any place. He's king of peace. And there's something else. He's the priest of the Most High God, and he's also king of righteousness, for that's what Melchizedek means, Melech is a Hebrew word meaning king, and Zedek means righteousness. Jeremiah speaks of Jehovah, our righteousness. And so here we have this king of peace, and he's king of righteousness, and he's the priest of the Most High God. We're not going to be left in the dark about that very long, you see. 
And that's very important to see. He's the priest of the Most High God. And the very interesting thing is that he came out to meet this man, Abraham, and the thing he did, he brought out bread and wine. And here are these two old worthies, these patriarchs, Melchizedek and Abraham, celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, They are looking forward to the coming of Christ. Just 2,000 years before Christ came, and you and I meet today, and we partake of bread and wine, and we look back to the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago. So here are these two worthies, and they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Now, don't ask me to explain it. I can't explain it. I just call your attention to it here. This is something that we stand in profound awe and wonder and worship here. This is where faith treads on the high places. Here's where we're having that steak dinner we were talking about. Now, I'm going to begin reading again here in verse 2 of the seventh chapter of Hebrews. "...to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace." without father, without mother, without descent, that is, without pedigree, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. May I say to you that this man Melchizedek is going to be a type of Christ. He's going to represent him in several different ways. He's king of peace. He's king of righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ is a king. He is righteous. He's been made unto us righteousness. And he also is priest of the Most High God. The Lord Jesus Christ is our great high priest. Now, he is a picture and a type of Christ in another way. The Lord Jesus comes out of eternity, moves into eternity, has no beginning, has no ending. He is the beginning. He is the ending. And you can't go beyond him in the past. You can't get ahead of him in the future. He encompasses all of time and all of eternity. Now, how are you going to get a man that would fit into that? Well, here we're in a book, the book of Genesis. And this man, Melchizedek, is in a book that gives pedigrees. Adam begets so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so begets so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so begets so-and-so. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob and his brethren. This one begat this one and this one. And you follow the genealogies down, and it's a book of the families. But this man, Melchizedek, in a book that gives genealogies, he just walks out on the page of Scripture out of nowhere, into the everywhere, and then he walks off the page of Scripture into the everywhere, and we don't see him anymore. There's a prophecy in Psalm 110, and now we're in the interpretation of it, and he's a picture of Christ in that he is the eternal God. That is, the Lord Jesus is, and he is a priest because he's the Son of God, 
and he's a priest continually. That is, he just keeps on being a priest. There'd be no change in his priesthood. Now, let's come back and look here at Melchizedek again. He came out at the right time, the right moment, because Abraham's going to be tested. And he needed someone to encourage him, to strengthen him. And he came out with bread and wine, and he was priest of the Most High God. That's the first time he's called the Most High God. That'll be used several times. And it's going to be quoted here. In fact, we're told in this particular chapter that he's the most high God. That is, that he is the God of creation, that he's above everything. Now, that's going to figure in this very prominently. Then the king of Sodom came to Abraham with a proposition. He said, now, Abraham, it was nice of you to recover Lot and the rest of the people. And we appreciate that. And I know you don't want to make them slaves. Give us the people and you keep the booty. Because according to the code of Hammurabi in that day, the law of warfare meant that the booty belonged to Abraham. Said, you keep it. It's yours. Abraham said, why, I won't do that at all. Because you couldn't give me a shoestring. You couldn't give me a piece of thread. That's really getting it down, friend. He says, I won't receive anything of you. Then God appeared to Abraham after that and said, I'm your exceeding great reward. The Lord Jesus Christ is a great high priest, and he ministers to us today. And friends, I want to be very frank with you. If he doesn't minister to you and doesn't bless your heart and life, It's because you're still a little babe and you haven't grown up and you haven't entered into this great truth that is here. How about it, Christian friend? Have you gone through trials, deep waters, and then has Jesus ministered to you? Has he helped you? Are you conscious of the fact that he blesses you every day? On our tour to Bible land, very frankly, I left half sick. And I would not have gone if my wife hadn't urged me to go. I just didn't feel up to the trip. But, you know, God was so good to us. We had good weather, and we never had a bad flight. And the Lord just was good to me. I just can't tell you how good. And I was conscious of the fact that my high priest was on the job. He was doing his job, friends. And he was blessing us. He's blessing us. I'm talking to you now about reality, friends. I'm not talking to you about a theory. I'm not talking to you about a religion, a ritual you go to. I'm talking to you about a man in the glory who's alive. He is the living God, if you'll notice that. He's the living God. And that's important. Is he the living God to you? That is a very important thing. And... Notice what happened here. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. I live in a universe that belongs to him. He owns it. And he has said that all things are ours. You enjoy a sunrise? I saw the sun come up this morning. 
Let me tell you what I did. I went out on the golf course by myself. I saw the sun come over the Sierra Madre Mountains this morning. And he did that just for me. What a performance he put on, friends. He's wonderful. And what a glorious day it was. My, he's so wonderful, friends. He's the living Christ. And I just thanked him again for bringing me to another day. And I thanked him for being so good to me. And I told him I loved him. (laughs) May I say to you, the living Christ, you under God's right hand. How real is he to you today, friends? Now, I'm going to keep reading here because it's very important. And this is not what you'd call deep theology. T-bone steak doesn't have to be the doctrine of predestination. In fact, that's not T-bone steak. If you ask me, that's pablum. But here is something very simple. And I want to read this now because we've been over this. I'm reading verse 3 again. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. Now, why did God, in a book where he gave the pedigrees, leave Melchizedek's out? Because he's going to become a type of the Lord Jesus Christ and his priesthood. That's the reason. And that's the reason all of these things have been given to us. You remember I read last time that all these things happen under them for types, and they're written for our admonition. Do you get a message out of all the Bible? This is written primarily to Hebrew Christians. Well, it sure is slanted toward us, too. I'm reading verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, under whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. Now, Abraham gave a tenth. He worshipped him and he paid tithes to him. He recognized that he was above him, that he was a priest of the Most High God. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Now, in Abraham they paid tithes to Melchizedek, and he's superior, therefore, to Aaron and to his family because of that. My friend, one of the ways that you recognize the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ is when you come and make a gift to him. And every gift ought to be not just to a church or to a radio program, but it's a gift to the Lord Jesus Christ. You recognize his lordship, and you're a priest worshiping when you do that. You're recognizing his superiority. Now, verse 6, "...but he whose descent is not counted from them..." received tithes of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promises. Well, you'd think Abraham would be superior to Melchizedek, but he's not. Here's a Gentile who's the priest of the Most High God. Now, where did he get his information? Now, let's not let this out, please. Not to these critics that write me, because even they think I know a few things. I don't even know where he got his information. I do not know the background of this man. 
And if anybody tries to tell you, he's guessing. He doesn't know either. I can just say it as a matter of fact. I don't know. But he's the priest of the Most High God. And I can't explain a whole lot of things about the Lord Jesus because he's God, but he's my great high priest today. And that's all I need to know. That's enough. Verse 7, And without all contradiction, the less is blessed to the better. When you worship the Lord Jesus, you recognize his superiority when you bow to him. Verse 8, And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it's witness that he liveth. And he'll receive you. You can offer yourself to him. Now, when I offer myself, he doesn't get much. But I have offered it to him, and I'm thankful that he will accept it. Now, verse 9, And as I may so say, Now, a great many people also kid me for repeating certain things. I have certain expressions that I use. My wife gets after me about them. I use the expression today. And she says, Why in the world do you say today so much? Well, I said, I say it's today because it is today. And when I say today, that's a fact. That's probably the biggest fact I utter is today. And then I have another thing. And as I may so say. Now, I have good authority for saying, may I say? Man down here near San Diego, he's a retired college professor. He said, I listen to you, McGee, but says, why in the world do you keep saying, may I say? You're going to say it anyway, and you don't have to ask that of me. I'm going to listen to you. Well, friends, it's just an expression we use, and I've got good scriptural authority for it. Here it is, verse 9 of the seventh chapter of Hebrews. Write it down, and as I may so say, he says it. I'm going to say it too. Levi also, who receiveth tithes, payeth tithes in Abraham. Oh, does that open up a new line of truth? That means that back yonder, when Adam sinned, I sinned. In Adam, all die. The reason I'm going to die, if the Lord tarry, and you're going to die, you're in Adam. And I sinned in Adam. I was in Adam. And today, I'm perfect. Do you want to know that? I'm in Christ. God sees me in Christ. And I'm perfect in Christ. I'm accepted in the Beloved. Friends, this is scriptural. This is a great truth here. It's stated in simple language. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? In other words, the thing that characterized the Aaronic priesthood is it was incomplete. It never brought perfection. It never gave redemption and acceptance before God to the people. Therefore, we need Christ. For the priesthood being changed, there's made of necessity a change also of the law. We're not under the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law belonged to the Aaronic priesthood, where they offered bloody sacrifices. They go together. We're now in law to Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of God. Verse 13, For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. And the Lord Jesus came after the tribe of Judah. And 
There's no priest there. He could never be a priest here on earth. Verse 14, "...for it's evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest." That's what the prophecy said in Psalm 110 of the Messiah that was coming. "...who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment," that is, by some laying on of hands, "...but after the power of an endless life, he became a priest by his resurrection from the dead." Verse 17, "...for he testified, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof." The Mosaic system went out of style. It wore out. It never gave what man must have perfection. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. We now come to God through Christ. Now, friends, we come to the 20th verse of the 7th chapter of Hebrews. And we're talking here actually very simply about the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ being compared to the priesthood of Melchizedek. And we have seen that the Lord Jesus Christ is a perpetual priest. Melchizedek represents that. He's the type, you see. And God gave it to us that way. And he is a perfect priest. The Aaronic priesthood couldn't fulfill all the bill. Now we have a perfect priest, and that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. Even Abraham paid tithes to this man that was the great high priest Melchizedek. He paid tithes to him. And at that time, Levi was in the loins of Abraham. You and I were in Christ. We are in Christ now, but we were in Adam way back yonder. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam sinned, I sinned. What Adam did, I did. In Adam, all die. And in Adam, all have sinned. And I'm glad God made it that way because now he can provide a salvation for me and on the same basis of taking me out of Adam and putting me in Christ and if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. He's in a place where old relations are passed away, old things are passed away, and all things have become new. No longer joined to Adam, but now joined to the living Christ. Now he's made a contrast in this section that we closed out with last time. There's a contrast of two priesthood. One is a priesthood based on law. The other's one based on power. Law restrains, and power enables. And then the Aaronic priesthood was a priesthood built on commandments. It was external. It rubbed religion on the outside. Now we have a priesthood that gives us life, and that's internal, not external. The priesthood of Aaron was a carnal priesthood, it had to do with the things of the flesh. Now we have an endless priesthood and gives eternal life. And one was changing 
The one we have is unchanging. There was a weakness and unprofitableness in the other, but that's versus now we are brought nigh to God. Nothing was perfect in the other. Now we have a better hope. Let me read now verse 20. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And by the way, that's in Psalm 110. And this is the prophecy of the fact that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be in the line of Melchizedek as a priest. And we are told here with this language now that the writer to the Hebrews is referring to. Verse 4 of Psalm 110, The Lord hath sworn, will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, that is the thing that makes the priesthood of Christ superior for the very simple reason that the priesthood of Christ rests upon not only the Word of God, but the oath of God. Well, all you have in the Old Testament is that the tribe of Levi was taken, no oath given. They were just set aside for this particular function. And now will you notice verse 22, "...by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament." that is, of a better covenant, so that we have now not only a better priesthood in Melchizedek, but it's by a better covenant. And we're going to be coming to that in chapter 8. And that'll take us all the way through chapter 10, that Christ, as our high priest, he ministers in a superior sanctuary by a better covenant, built upon better promises, so that the Lord Jesus' priesthood is superior in every department. Now, it says that so much was Jesus made a surety of a better covenant. And the word testament there should be that, by the way. Now, verse 23, and we're going to look at Christ, then his person is a perpetual and perfect priest. Will you listen to this? And they truly were many priests, that is, in the Levitical order, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. In other words, that the priesthood that you have in the Old Testament always ended by death. Aaron died, just as Moses did. And I've always felt that the death of Aaron, if it wasn't greater, was just as great a loss to Israel as the death of Moses. For the simple reason, they've lost their high priest, the one who went with them through the wilderness, who knew them and understood them. Now they have to have a new one. And you and I don't need to have a changing priesthood. In fact, it doesn't change. Verse 24, "...but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood." The Lord Jesus Christ won't be dying anymore. He died once for sins, but never again will he die. And he's there all the time for you. I read this letter from the man down in Puerto Rico that late at night, 
for him as he comes home from work in this oil refinery. He listens to the Word of God, and the Spirit of God ministers the Word of God to him down there late at night. And he spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought at the time, the Lord Jesus knew all about that man long before I got a letter and knew about him. And I didn't know that late at night down there, he was listening. The Lord Jesus knew he was because he has an unchangeable priesthood. And that means that he's on duty 24 hours a day. That means 11.30 at night down there, he knows this man. He understands this man. He ministers the Word of God to this man. And if he doesn't do it, it won't be done. I can assure you that. And very frankly, friends, I just rejoice in the privilege of giving out the Word today because God will minister that. The Lord Jesus is great high priest. And when that fellow heard it down there, up here, I was really in bed. I wasn't speaking. I just made a tape as I'm making one right now. And so while I'm sleeping, there's a high priest up yonder, and he's going to make the word effective, friends. How wonderful it is. Let's give him all the praise and glory. And if you have any criticism, give that to me because I'm to blame. But let's praise him. Let's give him the glory. Now he comes to this tremendous verse, here, and in one way, I suppose this is the key verse to this section, and it's the very center of the gospel. And let me read it, verse 25. Wherefore, here we go again with another one of these hinges on the door of time. This little hinge swings a big door back to what's gone before and swings on into what's coming in the future. Wherefore, He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now, this is quite a wonderful verse. It says, first of all here, that Christ is not dead, but he's living right now, this very moment. He's alive. He's up there to make intercession for us. And we have the emphasis upon the death and resurrection of Christ, but we ought to go on from there, you see. And we ought to have to do today with the living Christ. We know him no longer after the flesh. We know him today as our great high priest at God's right hand. And friends, that's what we need to go on to today. That's where we need to put the emphasis today. He died down here to save us. But he lives up there to keep us saved. He's able to keep on saving us too, by the way. And he saves to the uttermost. Now, that means all the way through. That means he's able to save us completely and perfectly. When he undertakes the job, well, he is the great shepherd that up to right this moment has never lost a sheep. And you want to know something. He's never going to lose one. And if you are one of his sheep, you may feel like you're going to be lost. But if you're his sheep, he's up there for you, and he's watching over. And now we are told here that he makes intercession. 
That actually means intervention. He intervenes for us. We shall be saved by his life, Paul says in Romans 5.10. Because John wrote, he says, My little born ones, these things write I unto you that you sin not. Well, John, you're not talking to me because you are really talking to a saint that sins. I do a lot of things that are wrong. Now, John, do you have a word for me? Well, my little born one, these things write unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, now you're getting somewhere. We have an advocate. We have a paraclete. We have a comforter. We have somebody to stand at our side. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And everything he does is right up there. Everything he does is righteous. And may I say, we shall be saved by his life. And how wonderful to know that we have a living Christ today. You're not alone, friend. You see, this is all baby stuff to sit down today and cry, oh, I'm having this problem and I'm so alone. There's nobody to help me. To whom shall I go? My friend, what do you think he's doing up there? Aren't you conscious of him? Why don't you turn to him? I remember I took the mother of a man that was running away with another woman and was leaving his wife, and I took her to talk to the other woman. The other woman hadn't changed her mind. She was going with him, and she went with him. And this poor mother, when I took her home, she just got down in the bottom of the car, right down on the floorboard as I drove along and began to cry out, Oh, God, why have you forsaken me? But by the time that we got to her home, she was more composed, and she apologized, and she says, I'm sorry that I said that God has forsaken me. I don't believe that he has. And I said, no, you can be sure of one thing, that he ever lives to make intercession for you. And and though we are faithless, he's always faithful to us. And it's wonderful to know that he's up there for us, friends. Now, will you notice as I read on, verse 26 says, For such a high priest became us, who's holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Now, there's several wonderful things right here. He became us. Actually, he became us means that he's just right to meet our need. Christ is just what we needed, you know. He is the one that fits the bill. He's just right for us. You couldn't have anyone better than he is. Now, notice it says here that he's holy, and that's in his relationship to God. May I say to you, he is the Holy One, and he's harmless. That means he's free from any malice or craftiness or cleverness. When he gets you off when you sin, it's not because he's a clever lawyer. It's because he is absolutely us, one who paid the penalty for you, and the penalty has been paid, and he's undefiled. That means that he's free from any moral impurity. And my friend, may I say that this is God's answer to Jesus Christ's superstar. I don't care what you think about that blasphemous 
piece of literature. But there's one thing for sure. The Bible makes it clear that the Lord Jesus was free from moral impurity. And not only that, he was separate from sinners. He's like us, yet he's unlike us. He could mix and mingle with sinners. And they didn't feel uncomfortable in his presence, but he wasn't one of them. They accused him of that, you know, that he was with publicans and sinners. He sure was, but he wasn't one of them, separate from sinners. Now, let us keep on moving here. Verse 27, "...who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins." See, he needed none for his own. "...and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered himself." The Lord Jesus, if it was necessary to come back and die for you again... He'd be back, friends. He'd be back today. But he won't be back today to die for you because he died once. All of the continual sacrificing, I'm of the opinion in the Old Testament, it got pretty old, got very tiresome. I'm sure that many a time that the priests would meet there at the laver to wash their hands and feet. And I think one of them would turn to the other and say, Say, how many times have you been here today? And he said, well, I don't know. I'm sure I've been here a dozen times. And the other one says, well, man, I've been here 15 times. He says, I've washed my hands here so many times that i got dishpan hands. And look at my feet. They look like I've been standing in water all day. And I'm so tired of going to that altar and offering that sacrifice. Again and again and again going through the ritual. And I want to tell you, it was pretty wearisome. I think if Aaron had overheard them, been standing back of them there probably, he would have said, I want to say that I too agree with you about how tiresome and wearisome this ritual gets. But you know what God's trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that sin is an awful thing and that it requires the shedding of blood. But he's got one that's coming someday, and he's going to die on a cross for us, and when he does, there's going to be no more shedding of blood for sin. He will have paid the penalty. What a picture that we have here. Now, verse 28, "...for the law maketh man high priests which have infirmity." And after all, the high priest in that day, he had to offer something for himself. The Lord Jesus never did. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh a son who is consecrated forevermore. We have a high priest who can be touched today, can be reached today. He's there to help, and he understands. But he's holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. Now, friends, we are coming to the high-water mark here in the 8th chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews. I think that we hit it back in chapter 7 when we began with verse 25. Wherefore, he's able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And this is, in my judgment, one of the high-water marks in the Word of God. And it's the key verse to this section. And you see that 
the emphasis here is upon the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is not dead but living. He's not on a cross today. He died there, and they put him in a grave, and he's not there today either. He rose from the dead, and the emphasis is now upon the living Christ. He's alive up there. And then he goes on to say, for such a high priest becomes us. He's what we need, and he's all we need. He's holy, harmless, and as we saw last time, he's holy in his relation to God. No question about him. There would be about some man down here, and he's harmless. He never does anything to harm you. He never moves by anger, and he's undefiled. He's free from any moral impurity. He's separate from sinners in his life and in his character. But my friends, he's right down here among us, and he wants us to come to him. And he's higher than the heavens. That means he's in the presence of God. And the value of his sacrifice is stated here, verse 27, "...who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins." And then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. And his sacrifice was not a silver, a gold, a bulls, or goats, but he offered up himself. There's no greater value than that. His redemption is more precious than silver, gold, or anything. Now, verse 28 says, For the law maketh man high priests which have infirmity. You don't put your confidence in a man when you put your confidence in Jesus, but you put your confidence in the God-man. And he's a man because of the fact that he today can sympathize with you. He's able to meet your need down here, friends. He's a royal priest. He's a righteous priest. He's a peace-promoting priest. He's a personal priest. He's for you personally. And... He didn't inherit the office. He is an eternal priest. He didn't come in the line of Aaron, didn't inherit it, you see. Now, he ministers, we're told here in chapter 8, in a superior sanctuary by a much better covenant, and it's built upon better promises. Now, we have here, first of all, the true tabernacle. And notice verse 1, because... We're going to look now at the true tabernacle in the first five verses. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Actually, he's not summing this up, although I would not want to say that that's not here. It's here, but there's more than that here. If I could give you a literal translation, it would be like this. In consideration of the things which are spoken... This is the focal point, or the chief point. We have such a high priest, as we've seen. He sat down in the heavens on the right hand of the majesty. And as we've said, this is the high-water mark now in Hebrews. And he did something that no priest in the Old Testament ever did. There's not a priest in the line of Aaron that ever had a chair in the tabernacle where he sat down. He's on the run all the time. Why? Because you just have to keep moving. All of these things are shadows. They're pointing to a finished sacrifice. And now when Christ died, 
It's all fulfilled. There's no need of running around, friend. You don't have to act like a chicken with your head cut off today in the religious world. And so many act like that. All that you have to do is turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He sat down because he finished your redemption, and he asked you to accept it. Now, we're moving into this area that he's a superior priest. He's better. In fact, he's the best. But we're told in verse 2, "...a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man." Now, Bezalel was the one who made the articles of furniture, the beautiful articles of furniture, like the ark, the top of it, the mercy seat, and the golden lampstand. And he did that. It was highly ornate and very beautiful, made out of gold. He made it. It's all man-made, but the Holy Spirit led him in all of it. It took a man with a gift that the Holy Spirit had given him. But the thing to understand is that the Lord Jesus ministers in a tabernacle that he himself has made in heaven. Now, we are going to talk about something, and very candidly, I feel totally inadequate again to say this to you. And I hope that I communicate something to you in these next few verses that we have here. Let me read again verse 2 and then read verse 3. A minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, He should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. You see, that verse makes it clear that the temple in Jerusalem was still in existence and that priests were still functioning there. Now, verse 5, "...who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle." For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Now, here is the thing that I truly believe, that when Moses made the tabernacle, God gave him a pattern of the original, the true tabernacle. And when it says true here, it means the genuine tabernacle. In verse 2, when it says a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, a genuine one. And you notice the temple with all of its complications and all of its detail does not furnish the type. The tabernacle does in all of its simplicity. Now, let me say just a word about it, because after all, the temple was really patterned after it, but it became a rather complicated thing. But you have simplicity in the tabernacle itself. Now, it was called a tent because, frankly, it was boards that were put up, very attractive, by the way, very ornate, covered with gold, so that it was 30 cubits long and 10 cubits wide. And it was divided into two compartments. There was a compartment that was called a holy place. It had in it three articles of furniture, golden lampstand, 
a golden table of showbread and a golden altar where incense was offered. No sacrifice other than incense. Now, the lampstand speaks of Christ, the light of the world. The table of showbread speaks of him as the bread of life. And the altar there, the golden altar, speaks of prayer. The fact he's our great intercessor. Here's where the high priest went to pray. And then on the great day of atonement, he went back of the veil, for the tabernacle was divided into two compartments. And back in the Holy of Holies, there were two articles of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant, and it was a box made of wood covered with gold on both inside and outside. In it were the tables of stone and pot of manna and Aaron's rod that budded. It all speaks, the Ten Commandments speak of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law, and he fulfilled it, and he's the only one that ever kept it in all of its detail. And then there was there the pot of manna that speaks of the fact that he's the bread of life even today. And then you have Aaron's rod that budded, and that speaks of his resurrection. Now, on top of it was a mercy seat, called a mercy seat. It was really a top for the box, highly ornamented, two cherubims that looked down upon the top. High priest went in there once a year, put blood down there for the nation, and that's what made it a mercy seat, because that was God's dwelling place. That is not a permanent dwelling place, but that's where he met with the children of Israel. Now, around the tabernacle, there was a court, and there was a fence. The fence was a 100 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and in that court, there were two articles of furniture. Now, those two articles of furniture in what was known as the outer court, one was the brazen altar where all sacrifice was made, and that's where the sin question was settled. But you know, saints sin, and so there was a laver where you come for washing. Now, when the sin question's been settled in the outer court, you move into the holy place, and that's the place where the priests served, and that's the place of worship, and you worship God when you pray, when you feed upon him, when you walk in the light of his presence, and that is an obedience to him. That's worship. But no one ever got into the holy of holies, but the Lord Jesus, when he died... That veil was rent in twain, and that way was opened up into the Holy of Holies. Not only did that take place, but the Lord Jesus Christ actually took that tabernacle, which was horizontal with the earth, and made it perpendicular. Because down here on the earth, why, that's where he died. Here's where we make confession of sin. And then the golden lampstand, and we walk in the light of his word because we feed upon it. And then there is that golden altar, but it's not there anymore as we're going to find. It's up yonder in heaven because that's where he's gone. And the rest of this is all up in heaven today. Now, my friend, this is the point I want to make. Someone says, well, you said when you got to this section here, because we were warned back in chapter 5 and 6 that he was going to start serving porterhouse steaks that we'd all been drinking milk, and now he's going to give us something deep. This seems very simple. Yes, it is, friend. And somebody says, well, then, 
Is this a porterhouse steak? Yes, it is. I hope now I can get through to you what we're talking about. Now, if you'd been in Israel and you had gone to the heart of that camp in the wilderness, you would have seen when they were camped that that tabernacle was functioning. That was the pillar cloud over it by day, the pillar of fire by night. And the priests were busy running to and fro there, just as busy as termites. And sacrifice was being offered, and incense was being offered, and all of that sort of thing was going on. And there was observance of this ritual, and they were going through all of it. Now, that was a shadow of a reality. In heaven, there is the reality. And the rest of the reality is this, that Jesus is there today functioning for you and for me. Now, are you ready for the beef steak? We've got it cooked now, and I'd like to put it right down before you. Friends, I want to ask a personal question. Is he real to you right now? May I say to you, if you still like to run around in a ritual and have a nice, beautiful service, and there's nothing wrong with that, don't misunderstand me, but you think that's worship, and you think that today that you're serving God because you're teaching a Sunday school class or you're singing in the choir, I have news for you. You forget it. That, my friend, is not what he's talking about here. He's trying to get through to you that Jesus is up yonder for you right now, this very moment. And what does it really mean to you? Come on now, don't get choked on the stake. Don't ask for a glass of milk now. Don't start running around doing these little things. Let the pots and pans alone, Martha. You don't need to be handling those right now. Let's sit at Jesus' feet. Let's have him a reality in our lives. When you left the house this morning, did you leave with him? Were you conscious of his presence? He's up there serving for you, friends. He's your intercessor. You go to him to make confession of your sins. Why is it that you're worrying your pastor to death? You have to go over there for counseling all the time. Isn't Jesus real to you today? Why keep drinking the milk? Quit being a little baby that has to be burped all the time. Grow up and come into the presence of a living Savior today. Oh, friends, here is what he's talking about. May God take the veil from our eyes. And may he make Jesus Christ in all of his power and in all of his salvation and all of his love and in all of his care for you and in all of his reality. The real tabernacle is up yonder. That tabernacle that was down here, I'm of the opinion many Israelites would told you, well, that tabernacle's real. I've been up, I felt the linen, that linen fence that was around it. I've been in there and stood by that altar. That altar's real. Well, my friend, have you been into the Holy of Holies and found out that there's a throne of grace there and that Jesus is your intercessor? And is he real to you? Don't misunderstand me today. Please, will you stop the baby talk? Don't write me and say, Dr. McGee, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I hope you did, but is Jesus real to you today? Has the Holy Spirit taken Christ and made him real to you today? 
I'm not talking about going to church and singing the doxology and having the invocation and I've been to church and I feel better. Well, I hope you do feel better and I hope you've got something for your souls. But are you still drinking milk? Is that what you had for dinner? Is Jesus real to you? That's the important thing. And up yonder, there's a real tabernacle. And I want to feed on the living bread today. I want to walk in the light of his presence so that anywhere I go, the letter I read, no one's ever heard me preach against liquor. In fact, I'm rebuked by that by some people. Why don't you run up the American flag? Why don't you fight communism? Why don't you do this? My friend, I'm teaching the Word of God, and I'm trying to get folk into the presence of the living Christ. And if you get there, may I say to you, like the letter I read, the fellow said, I never knew how cheap a glass of beer was. And that's in spite of all they say about it on TV today. My friend, I'd like to get through to you today. I'd like for you to see the reality of Christ. And when you do, all of these things will drop into their correct place. You don't need to worry about that. Because if you're walking in the light of his presence... You're going to walk with him down the street. And if you go into a bar room, he's going to have to go in with you. I don't know whether you want to take him there or not. Maybe you do. And there'll be a lot of places that you're going to stop and consider. And you're going to stop and consider your conduct if you're conscious of the presence of Jesus Christ with you all the time. He is the living intercessor today, friends. He's alive. It's wonderful to read the Gospels and talk about the man who walked by the Sea of Galilee. I love to read them. But he's not by the Sea of Galilee. He today is at God's right hand. He finished my redemption. And he says, McGee, you're sort of a problem, child, but I want you to come to me. And I've been coming to him. I can take everything to him. Friends, am I getting through to you today? This, my friend is what he meant when he said, we're dull of hearing. All of us are. Have you heard him? Have you seen him? Has God made him real to you? Now, if you've seen him visibly, something's wrong with you. But has God made him real to you in your heart? Oh, how wonderful this is. You say a bogged down. No, we're not. We're in his presence. We're at the high water mark. We're walking in the tall corn today. We're treading on the mountaintops. We're skipping on the hills today. This is a wonderful section. Now, friends, notice verse 6. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he's the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Now we've come to something else. This tabernacle down here was a shadow. The reality is up yonder, and he's real today down there. And he lives up there. He can keep us saved. Somebody says, you think you can lose your salvation? I want to make a confession to you. I'd lose mine before the sun went down today if he wasn't up there right now. I tell you, he's having a problem with me, and maybe he's having a problem with you. But thank God he's there. The reality, Jesus Christ, my, how we need him today. He's the mediator of a better covenant now. We're going to see about that better covenant, which hath 
been enacted upon better promises. Now, if you're not a dispensationalist, you're not going to like what we're going to say. Maybe you'll want to go fishing or do something like that because we're going to see that he's talking about these things that are so important today if we are to know him. Now, he today has made the throne of God a throne of grace, and we have been bidden to come there with great confidence and assurance that he's there. And may I say that this is the thing that you and I need to pray for above everything else. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Because I don't know about you, but my unbelief is bigger than my belief. And we need today to come by faith, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so you and I need to have the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. He's not going to appear to you. You're not going to see anything. You're not going to hear anything with your eye and your ear. But that inner eye, that inner ear, that only faith can speak to, and he can make himself real to you today. And that is the thing that is important. Now, he hath obtained a more excellent ministry. And the fact of the matter is that we have here, he's working now under a new covenant. He hath obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Now, we have what's known as the New Covenant today. We call it the New Testament. The New Testament is actually a new covenant that God has made. And it's in contrast to the Old Covenant. Now, if you believe that it was different back in the Old Testament under law. When God gave to Moses the Mosaic law, and then he gave to them the tabernacle with its service, that's where sin was dealt with. No one was ever saved by keeping the law. No one ever came to God and says, I've kept all your commandments, therefore receive me. No, they were always bringing sacrifices because they were sinners. The law revealed to them that they'd come short of the glory of God. Now, that was the system in that day. And the sacrificial system was all shattered. The tabernacle God gave them was a real tabernacle, but it was a shadow of the reality of the one Christ ministers in today. And so we have a better one today, a better high priest than a better tabernacle. In other words, so far we've seen that we have a better priest today. We have a better sacrifice today. And we have a better tabernacle today. And all of this converges yonder at that brazen altar. For Christ is all three. He's the better priest that ministers there. He's the better sacrifice. He offered himself. And he ministers in a better tabernacle for he offered his blood for your sin and my sin. Now, I have always taken the position and did in my book on the tabernacle. And by the way, I should mention that to you, that I have a book on the tabernacle. And if you would like to have that in connection with Hebrews, why we send these out, the notes and outlines 
are for free. We never ask anyone to send a gift, but we do have to ask you to for books. And I have a book entitled, The Tabernacle, God's Portrait of Christ. And it deals with this tabernacle on earth, that it's a picture of the reality in heaven. And in that, I take the position, I did, but I had a secretary that was very much concerned about the criticism I'd received, and I discovered that she unknowingly took it out of the last edition, and she should not have without my permission. I'd never give permission. And I take the position that Christ offered his literal blood in heaven. That's what he was doing when he told Mary, "'Touch me not, I have not yet ascended to my God, your God, my Father, and your Father.'" I'm on the way. And he was a high priest then on the way. And I think he offered his literal blood in heaven. And I believe it's going to be there throughout eternity. Now, somebody's going to say to me, because it has been said, when that book was first reviewed by a Christian magazine in the East, they were very complimentary of the book, but they gave a warning. They suggested that all preachers get it. But they said, now, You have to be very careful. This man takes everything literal. He believes that Jesus offered his literal blood in heaven, and we feel that's crude. Well, my friend, I don't think that the blood of Christ is crude even when it was shed here on earth or when it's offered in heaven. I don't feel it's crude because Simon Peter, he was not what you'd call a cultured individual. He called it precious. He said it's the precious blood of Christ. And I don't think that there's anything crude about it. I think it's going to be there in heaven throughout eternity to remind you and me the price that was paid for it. And my feeling is this, that as someone came to a great preacher in the East years ago, and she was one of these society dowagers, had a lorgnette, you know. A lorgnette is a sneer on the end of a stick. And she came up and put that lorgnette up to her eye, and she says, Doctor, I hope you won't be like our last preacher. He was rather old-fashioned. He put a great emphasis on the blood. And to me, it's very offensive. The blood, it offends my ascetic nature. And she asked him if he didn't think it was offensive. He said, I do not see anything offensive about the blood of Christ, but your sin and my sin." And I have a notion that preacher didn't get along with that woman either. May I say to you, friends, very definitely, very dogmatically, I believe it's there. (laughs) And I believe it's there to remind us throughout eternity. He paid a price for us. Now, we're told here that it's established upon better promises, better promises today. Now, back in the Old Testament, why they brought their sacrifices. They were given the law, and when they broke it, they brought the sacrifices. And by the way, before God gave the law and the instructions for the tabernacle, they came like they did in Abraham's day, you know. And he came by faith to God. And then you move back of Abraham, you find out Noah was on a little different basis altogether. I don't think you can read the Bible intelligently without seeing that God dealt with men differently in different ages. And you don't want to call that dispensations. Then you come up with your own word, but it's there, my friend. 
If you accept the inerrancy of Scripture and believe that it's the Word of God, you've got dispensations there if you read it aright. And we're reminded here that there are better promises. This new covenant is based on better promises. Now, you and I have entered in today and have been made a part of it. But may I say to you, God is not through with the nation Israel. He makes that very clear, and that these better promises are going to be fulfilled in the future. And I'd just like to turn to one passage of Scripture. We've been over it recently. It's Jeremiah, the 31st chapter. And in this chapter, you just can't get away from the fact that God's going to return the children of Israel back to that land. And friends, this present return is not the fulfillment of prophecy according to my book. Now, he says very definitely he's going to return them to the land. In Jeremiah 30, verse 18, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I'll bring again the captivity of Jacob's tents, and have mercy on his dwelling places, and the city shall be builded upon her own heap, and the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. Then in chapter 31, verse 8, Behold, I bring them from the north country, gather them from the coasts of the earth. And by the way, he mentions the north country. That's Russia. By the way, they're not doing so well today getting out of Russia. But when God brings them, there'll be no problem at that time when they turn to him. And he goes on to say, verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles of far off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob. Now, they're not back there under God's redemption today. They are far from him. Now, God says, when that day comes, and I drop down now to verse 31 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah. Now, you listen to this. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about when he says there are going to be better promises on a better covenant that God will make. With these people, verse 31, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I'll put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, God says, I gave it to them before and wrote it on a cold, hard stone, and they couldn't keep it. But now I'm going to write it on the fleshly tablets of the heart. In other words, it was external before. He's going to do a work in their hearts, which he has not done up to the present as a nation. And there's no turning to God at all. A guide that I had the privilege of meeting, and I liked him very much. He's a very attractive fellow. And he just smiled when I witnessed to him about the Lord Jesus. I told him, I said, you ought to be telling me about Jesus. You are a Jew. You're living here in this land, this is where he lived, and he died for the sins of the world, and I'm a poor Gentile. I've come from afar. You ought to be telling me about him. But here I am telling you. He just laughed. 
May I say to you, friends, they are not backed according to this promise, but God's going to make it good. Why? Because, listen to him, verse 34, "...they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me." They don't know him today. "...from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord." For I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. Now, that's what the writer to the Hebrews is talking about here, which was established upon better promises. Now, will you listen to him? For if that first covenant had been faultless, that is, if there'd been nothing wrong with that first covenant, God says, then should no place have been sought for a second. Now, what he's saying here is something, I think, very important. He's saying here the first covenant was not adequate, and it created a necessity for a better covenant. Now, somebody says, then the covenant was wrong. Oh, no. Will you listen to him? Verse 8, "...for finding fault with them, not with it, The problem never was with God's covenant. And there's nothing wrong with God's law, but there's a whole lot wrong with you and me. You and I are not able to keep it. We're not able to measure up to it. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We've just read about that in Jeremiah, and you could read about it in the rest of the prophets if we have time. Now, verse 9 not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I'll put my laws into their mind, write them into their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people." And they shall not teach every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that, he saith, a new covenant. He hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So, my friend... We're not under the Mosaic system. That system, God says now it's old. It's an old model. He's brought in a new model today. And that new covenant He's made through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. And He did it because something wrong with the old? No, there's something wrong with us. And I feel sorry for these people today. And my friend, I come back to it. You're just drinking milk when you get back under the law, and you talk about keeping a Sabbath day, and you talk about keeping the law, you know you don't keep the Mosaic system if you're honest. You come short. Now, if you come to God, He's gracious today. The Lord Jesus is right now at God's right hand. You could come to Him. If you would come to Him, you can come, and He will receive you. You and I can't keep the old. I like to put it in this story. I use it in the eighth chapter of Romans. It's like the woman or the housewife. She puts a roast in the oven, and at the price they are today, they don't put many roasts there. And so she puts the roast in the oven, 
and she gets busy in the kitchen, and so the telephone rings, and she listens to the phone, and it's Miss Doe, John Doe's wife, and boy, she has a bit of gossip. She begins by saying, have you heard? And believe me, she hadn't heard. And my, they talk for about 45 minutes or an hour. And all of a sudden, why, she smells something burning in the kitchen. And she says, oh, Miss Doe, I got to go because something's burning in the oven and it's not dough. So she rushes into the kitchen, opens it up, the smoke comes out, and she runs, gets a fork, and puts it in. But the fork won't hold. And then she moves it over near the bone, and it still won't hold. And so she goes, gets the spatula, puts it up and under the ropes, and then she lifts it out. You see what the fork could not do, the spatula now can do. And there's nothing wrong with the fork, the problem's with the roast, it's overcooked. So what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God now has sent the Holy Spirit. We have a new covenant. It's based on better promises. And that promise is that he's given the Holy Spirit to us today, and he's up yonder to help us. This, my friend, is a very wonderful passage of Scripture. And if you want to get off the milk diet, and I know they say milk is so good for you today, and it is, there's milk in the Word, but learn to eat some meat along with it. That meat today is to put the emphasis upon the living Christ, his ascension and his intercession yonder in heaven for you and me today. My friend, when you and I lay hold of the living Christ, I tell you, we've gone to the heights. You can't go any higher than that in this age in which we live.